getting to the top of anything, if that's what you're trying to accomplish, once you get to the top of it, you realize there's nothing there, literally nothing there. When you're successful, in many cases, the reason why you're successful are really outside forces. Vision, talent, and, and money are the real jobs of a CEO and a founder, and they're actually stupidly hard to do well. Hi everyone, I'm Taiki, and you're listening to New to Venture. It's the show that dives deep into the world of startups and venture capital. From the multi-billion dollar exits to the biggest company blow-ups, if you don't know much about early stage companies and investing, you've come to the right place. It's time to get hype because the one and only David Kidder is with us today. If you have any questions about a startup or building a startup, David probably knows the answer. He's a serial entrepreneur with multiple exits, a New York Times best-selling author writing The Intellectual Devotion, The Startup Playbook, and my personal favorite, New to Big, which I have right here with me. He's also an angel investor in over 40 companies. Uh, David's also a founding member and advisor to the Acumen 1% Fund, a partner with Venture for America and YPO Global One. He has also served on the National Board of the Smithsonian and received the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award in 2008. Now, this is a packed resume. If I've ever seen one, David, welcome to the show. Oh, great to see you. I, I, uh, I need to edit that down. I, I think you pulled it from LinkedIn. So some of it's still current. Some uh, I probably should make shorter, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's great to be here. It's wonderful to stay connected with you and your journey and uh, look forward to the conversation. Absolutely. So to get us started, I'd like to talk about the origins of Bionic. So in New to Big, you talked about how the idea came to be at a TED conference in Boca. So what was the click in your mind that told you that you were onto something? When did you decide to drop everything and take a shot on this new idea? As a quick note, Bionic helps large Fortune 500 companies grow like startups. Even though these massive enterprises have tons of resources, their size often stunts their growth. So Bionic helps overcome these obstacles by unlocking innovation within the company. Well, I had I actually had had, had prior to Bionic had several three uh, companies I founded, and um, the last two are venture-backed SaaS companies through Exit, and I just sold the last one, which was a challenging one. And I went out and after that and wrote a book called The Startup Playbook. And so I spent probably 300 hours interviewing 45 and some of the best entrepreneurs I knew and my friends of friends, which are now several are quite famous. Reed Hoffman wrote the four of the book, Elon and others, um, and asking them basically how to bet your life. And after listening for those couple hundred hours, they effectively all say, said the same thing in their own words, obviously over and over and over again, which was this thing called the five lenses, which is an idea usually passes through these criteria in that order, in typically the tip of 36 months, that leads to a large um, outcome. And a friend of mine uh, who was the C ch chairman of GE at the time, F Comstock, asked me to come speak at their global leadership meeting in Boca. And it was uh, their uh, GLM conference uh, that I spoke at where she asked at the end of the conference, um, do you have any big uh, questions as an outsider to GE? And I'd had never done a lot of public speaking and I had no idea how big this conference was. There was like over 800 leaders in the room, including a very famous CEO in Jeff Immelt, who was a wonderful guy, despite some of the challenges at uh, GE, was an uh, was, uh, incredibly uh, dedicated um, um, CEO. And so the question I asked to the audience was, was how many $50 million companies did you launch last year? And um, as you might imagine, that was a pretty startling, provocative question. But my answer, I said, because I, I said, I bet the answer is zero. Like if you're, you know, you have, in this case, they had, I guess, 300,000 employees and 90 billion in the bank. I was like, how come that doesn't happen all the time? And, you know, it was very, it, was, it wasn't a lot of, uh, a lot of enough fans in the audience after I, that uh, question out there. But Jeff, to his credit, um, came backstage and he said, uh, you're going to come fix that. And I said, no, I'm not. And he came back on stage and he said, that's the most question, most important question in 37 years since um, this conference was started and uh, we need a change. And that sort of kicked off a real a movement inside not only their company, but several companies, including Citigroup, Nike, Johnson Controls, and others, 
around the idea that venture capital and entrepreneurship are forms of management. And um, I guess Bionic was the anti-McKinsey, anti-Six Sigma of our generation. It was a product-enabled service company with tools and people that went in and tried to transform large organizations for growth. And we, we did this successfully a number of times, but over 47 times in seven, eight years. And then we were acquired about two years ago by Accenture Song, their disruptive unit. And we've been scaling that model just uh, you know, um, you know, all over the world now. So it's been a lot of fun and uh, quite a lot of impact. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I remember doing some research on some of the companies that you would work with. And um, I had a call not too long ago with a few people at Nike Valiant Labs, which is this thing that you had created within Nike. Um, by the way, that was my dream um, my dream company to work for a couple of years back. And so they were talking about how, um, how awesome it was to be on like the innovation side of such a large company. So it seems like you really did a great job solving a problem for these larger companies. Um, I'd like to understand a little bit more what, maybe like if you could take me through an engagement with a Fortune 500 company, what would that look like from beginning to end? Yeah. So, I mean, there are unique moments in time. You know, um, there are all companies, whether they're having incredible success or having incredible failure, all struggle to sort of create new economic oxygen. So on the one hand, companies that are struggling typically are more, almost less open in many cases because they feel like they have less resources. But in any case, in both scenarios, the, 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 the nature of their success has changed. And so um, typically the CEOs are very good, but the rest of the organization is less good at understanding this truth, I think, which is when you're successful, in many cases, the reason why you're successful are really outside forces. And that comes from a quote as well in the Startup Playbook where I asked Reid Hoffman, I said, of all the billions of the bank, like what degree of what percentage of them would you, you know, associate with you know, things you don't control, you know, a good fortune, timing, other things. And he said about 80%. So if that's true, and I believe it is, that outside forces drive almost all of our success. So kind of, you're not quite as good as you think you are, and you're also not quite as bad as you think you are. When you're, when you're failing, it's happening to you when you're successful, you're fortunate. But it's really about market timing, being there when it happens. So your sensitivity to outside forces, if you think of that as sort of like wins, right? That wins move markets, either create new needs, or they shift the needs of your customers. And net new versus shifting are different challenges, but they're all affected by the outside forces. So you have alignment of outside force, the need, and then really the question of like, why us? You know, what is it that we have that no one in the world has to solve that problem? Now, in the case of the hurting companies, you know, that could be an activist investor, it could be AI, it could have been the cost of goods, things, you know, fundamentally changing. In the case of Nike, you know, as I was traveling to see Mark Parker um, with my uh, through the board, I met Jeff was on the board there, and I met I worked with a woman named Hannah Jones, who's a very close friend of mine, um, and she brought us in to help create Valiant Labs and get it off the ground. You know, I was with Mark in our first meeting in his conference room. As I as I went to see him, you know, he was at a cover of Fortune as CEO of the year, right, literally. And as we're going through the meeting, Mark is a very, he's a brilliant guy, but he's also very humble and he likes to take notes and he sketches and he kind of leaned back at the end and he was wondering if I'd seen him on the cover of Fortune probably. And he's thinking, basically, why do I need this? Why do I need this? I, my stock's all time high. I'm killing it. And, um, you know, I'm obviously very famous. And I, and he said, uh, you know, just the last, I guess it was the last, you know, a year prior to this, he goes, you know, a team came to me with a one-year plan to get to 100 million, and I seconded that team, and we built this, and we launched it, and that with that success within, in, let's say, three months or six months. And he's kind of saying the point very humbly, which is, I know how to innovate. Well, I my answer to him was, um, well, that's true, Mark. You can't, and I'm not suggesting you can't innovate. Obviously, your success is, but if it takes an act of God to get something to marketplace in six months, it's a systems problem. So he leaned back and he goes, I totally get it now. And he sort of released us to run this experiment to build Valiant because of that, um, because he's wise and smart and humble. And we got this thing off the ground and it was challenging because people were very successful and they were having success. So we had to change 
their mindset and the way they organized to be able to get to market faster with bigger ideas because they had so many gifts. Mm, gotcha. Yeah, what a fantastic story. I think uh, you touched on a lot of points there. Um, I think when you were first getting into the story, I was thinking about the, the saying, you need to be in a position to even be lucky to begin with. Um, and you're talking a lot about, you know, macro headwinds and how timing is deeply important. And I, I thought it was deeply interesting how you had said that um, 80% of a company's given success may be caused by outside factors and not internal ones. So um, definitely a lot to think about. And that kind of leads me into my next question, which is, um, because times are always changing, right? The pandemic happened in this decade, the rise of AI. Um, I guess, what kind of role does Bionic specifically play in this startup ecosystem, right? It's not specifically a VC investor and it's not specifically an accelerator. Um, it's more of like a company that builds innovation for larger companies. So um, I'd love to hear your take on where Bionic fits in the early stage company ecosystem. Yeah. Well, the short answer is, is that it, it it influences it in the sense that if large organizations are trying to go on offense and they think through the lens of portfolios. So for example, what we're trying to do is to help drive their mindset from a total addressable marketplace view of the world, which exists, to a total addressable problem or need view of the world, which doesn't exist. So reframing it from sort of the inside out to the outside in, from linear sort of five big bets a year to a portfolio, um, changes the way that they think about their investing, their capital allocation. So if I have a portfolio, I want to look across the boundaries of things I can own, accelerate, accelerators, incubations inside the company, partnerships with startups, right? Or investments in startups in that, in, sort of in that order. And we have to surround that sort of total addressable problem with those type of investments and those efforts in order to win the need, right? So that market force need why us that unlocking of that of how we're going to win that space of which a lot of it has to be driven by through mergers and acquisitions so m a so i think the partnership side to some extent the investment side and absolutely the m a side are influenced because these companies are very smart they are just big and that big has a burden on speed that affects their ability to compete with smaller things they can await they can outlast startups in the sense of market timing because it's unlikely they're going to get disrupted because of forces that they know where we they are going to get disrupted are outside forces that they don't see. So it's blindness to outside forces in their case. And for startups, it's about basically not being dead when the force arrives. It's like, you know, there's a great quote uh, by Fred Wilson of Union Square Ventures. Um, and my, my two startups ago was backed by USV with Albert Wenger's, my favorite people in the world. And um. And he talked about the job of a, what is the job of a founder and a CEO? And it's effectively three things. Um, it's vision, which is sort of what I'm describing, which is you have to be building a company that's right and on time. So not early and dead and or late and late, early and dead and not late and miss the window, being there when it happens. Um, and so that means you have to be right in the sort of three to five year window that you're alive. And you have to be deploying capital that's the right time in the quarter that you're in. So I'm not spending too much money or too little money in the right order. The second part of the job is talent. I have to put the right people in the right seats at the right time. Um, and if I get that wrong, it's typically fatal. Certainly one through 20 employees, you get almost zero mistakes. By the time I hire someone, put them in the wrong seat, they're the wrong person, I have to, I have to let them go, find someone new. It's one year I'm out of money. So like you, you have to be perfect in that regard, in that order. You can kind of get one or two mistakes I'm going to 50 people and maybe five to 10, maybe five on the way to 100. But that churn number of people is, is capital allocation is, is almost totally fatal to get it wrong and also incredibly helpful if you're to get it right. And the third part of the job is just you never run out of money. And there's only really two ways for that. One is you either earn it, which I think is a really good signal to the world that you have something that's valuable. And number two is, is that you raise it. So vision, talent, and, and money are the real jobs of a CEO and a founder. And they're actually stupidly hard to do well. Um, so I'm giving you a lot there to think about because a, a big company doesn't have those problems. They have a different set of problems, which is how do they set their in, internal environment up 
to win a need in the world, they must win. Um, and so they use the, the start of vehicles as a way to accelerate that possibility. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, well said. And as a serial entrepreneur, I'm sure you've experienced that many times over. Um, I'm kind of, I'm kind of interested to hear, um, I guess, what were some of the greatest moments that you've had as the CEO of Bionic, CEO of Clickable? What were uh, some of the, the key greatest moments and takeaways that you've had from being a serial entrepreneur? Yeah. Well, most of it's failure. So um, there are very few great moments. I mean, there are with your team, their relationship, their experiences you do together, um, their peak moments of growth. Um, but, you know, success is a bad educator. So there's very few of them. I mean, selling a company is a, the best and worst day in the sense that it's it's a great exit for everybody economically, but, the you know, it's now a new company. It's someone else's company. So you can't really be nostalgic about your company um, because uh, it's going to change. And so the more you hang on to it, the more difficult it is to see it grow differently. It's a different era. Um, you know, I, you know, Winning awards has been really wonderful. To be honest, you know, they're rare, they're rare. The the E and Y Entrepreneur Year Award was like kind of the Oscars of of uh, business, and it was uh, in the New York Tri-State. In a way, is like a country. I guess like the what big country in the world. So it was a big deal. Um, you know, writing books is a lot of fun. You know, getting a New York Times list is really fun. But largely, I have to be honest with you, I'm having exits. I've done up to my proto. I've done 85 venture investments and seen though a couple of those companies do really well and being part of that, or at least being ambiently part of it's really exciting. But largely all the growth happens in the grind. I, I, call, I refer to it as the becoming, right? It's it's not who you are to the world, as my late uncle said, who really started this movement for me. It's what you're becoming. It's, it's the everyday grind uh, of the hardship that helps you grow. And to try to escape that is really to miss the whole point of the journey. A company, if you're willing to start a company or part of one, it's really just a mirror. It's a mirror to force you to grow. Um, and the company is always a direct reflection of the mindset and the effort, and the talent of the leader or the leadership team. So when that company is failing, when you understand the outside forces, failing for the culture reasons, or the capital allocation reasons, or whatever, you start to realize that it's here to teach you and you are more than your company, right? It's just a company, right? It's not a person. It's not, uh, it's not a, it's, 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 a, it's a reflection of you, but it is not all of you. And so you have to really go through a lot of the emotional maturity and development to go through things because um, it, it will break you. And I've gone through moments of complete brokenness before. Um, and so I really had to start over uh, a couple of times. And so your ability to get through that, your ability to start over, your ability to recommit, re-start um, your life, re re um, you know, get new convictions and grow are really important. I'm, I'm actually going through that right now. I just turned 50 and, um, you know, going to, you know, eventually, you know, I'm building obviously at Accenture and a song and building this business, but I eventually will have to start over again someday, either inside of the company or in my own again. And I'm excited for those chapters of renewal um, and I'm not afraid of them because of that. That's a, a great segue to the next uh, point or the next topic that I wanted to talk about, which was this the founder and entrepreneur's capacity to go through the really tough times, right? And come out and rethink and edit, optimize their processes for success. And so you had mentioned earlier that you, a lot of joy has come from seeing a few of your 85 venture investments do well. And as someone who's new to venture capital, um, and looking to learn more about the space of investing in early stage companies, what is your thought process when a company comes to you looking for an angel check? Yeah. So this really goes back to the startup playbook and the five lenses, right? So all my entire investment thesis for the last 17 years has been around what I learned in that. Some prior to that, some earlier was more advantageous. So I'll give you two perspectives on this. One from the startup playbook, which I encourage you to get. And then the other one is from um, my own career. So I'll start with the one that's easiest for me, which is my own career, which is of the four companies I've founded through Exit, 
two of them only really worked, right? So they were they're acquired, you know, and that was fine. But like you know, but economically, or did we win? Were we successful? You know, really only two of them worked. And when I look back, and the reason the reason why, it's because those companies I deeply, deeply, deeply cared about. They really weren't about me. They were about the company. They're about the problem in the world. The ones that didn't work were really about building a company. They're opportunistic. I wanted to be a great CEO or I wanted to, but the question is, did I really, really, really care about the problem? And when you have ideas where, you know, you have a problem in the world that you care about and they just keep coming back to you, pay attention to those because every 10 hours feels like one hour. But when you're slogging away and you're kind of not really intellectually interested in things, that's a real problem because you're now, you're kind of like the dog that caught the car and you don't like the taste of the bumper, right? When, when you're trying to catch up to the thing you caught because it's pulling you and pushing you, you're onto something good. So caring deeply is a really good signal. The five lenses are really the criteria of what has to be true when I invest and how I build companies. And that is in this order. The first is proprietary gift. Why you? What is your secret? What do you know about the world that no one else knows? So the myth of the 20-something entrepreneur becoming a billionaire is really mostly a myth. While there's a lot of volume of, of bets there, they're less venture capitalists are less likely to invest in something without some very specific experience. In fact, the first venture capital check that goes into most startups is their founders in their 40s. So they have it, they have a proprietary gift. They understand the problem or need. Um, and what's another statistic that's interesting is that the reason why they invest in a company is because of that proprietary gift. There is 70% of the reason why a founder invests in the company is not because of the idea, it's because of the founder. And that's true of both the series, series C, sorry, the C round and the A round. The B round is totally different. Then it's the business metrics. Then you go to the God metrics business. So it's, it goes from like 70 to 30 to basically 10. So like as the business grows, the, bit, the proprietary gift has to go from the founder into the company, culturally organized in that way. Um, and that's your job. You know, it's the difference between working on in a business versus on it. So proprietary gift is number one. The second lens is that you have extreme focus. So optionality is your enemy. The more things that you do, the crappier you are and the company is. So if you've done a lot of work in the space before, you'll know where to focus. But if you haven't done a lot of work and you're just learning the space, you're going to waste a lot of money and time on that company trying to figure out how to get focus or learn how to get focus. So extreme focus is the second element. What is the customer? What's the problem and why you? The third lens is that you, whatever you do make in companies, either a product or a service, you have to have, build a painkiller and not a vitamin. So you got to be dealing with chronic, lifelong, malignant pain. And ideally, your customers are rich and in pain, right? It makes it a lot easier. Just more oxygen in the system. The last two lenses are really how well you execute. And those are how you capital allocate. That factor is the 10x factor. So largely misunderstood, but the 10x factor is you need to asymmetrically invest in the thing, the aspect of the business that becomes impossible to replicate. Because what you want is really the fifth lens, which is you want to build a monopoly. You don't want, you know, you don't want 10% of the space, you want all of the space. So proprietary gift with extreme focus, that's a painkiller, that's 10 times better, that becomes a monopoly is not a decision of one day. It's that those things become true because of how the founder thinks. So it's really about how the founder thinks. So I'm betting on the founder in the early stage, seed and A round, to help, help them think, but also to identify that they actually can think in a way that is similar to this to create these companies. Because lastly, coming full circle is they know their job, the job of vision, talent, and capital. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, also, additionally, like I, I went to some panel recently and it was about consumer venture capital. And um, they were discussing how the importance of founder problem fit is often forgotten over product market fit. And so what you were saying there earlier uh, really resonated with, with me on that one. Um, I, I kind of want to dive a little more deep into understanding whether founders have the right priorities, right? So 
you can you can tell them your thoughts on the keys to being a successful founder because you've done it many times but that doesn't necessarily mean that they'll listen to you or that they're like deeply coachable so are there when you're in like a call with the startup or you're looking for a founder in residence for bionic what are what's the mindset or framework that you use to judge people to say this is someone that i believe can build a successful business right so it's kind of more like what are the more qualitative things or like are there specific questions that you ask that helps you get a better understanding of whether this is the right person yeah well i mean if it depends on how old they are of course so is it a first time yeah. founder a second or third time founder what what which which type of founder are you talking about um, I'd say let's do first time. Oh, well, this yeah. is a, a podcast for people who are new to venture and generally, yeah. yeah so well, but this, I would just say the time. second time founder is pretty easy because you would just, you would just be able to contact anybody who worked with them prior to that and do your diligence. And, and you, you, you would know, understand whether they had success or failure, why that was occurred. In fact, it's, it's, it's more, more likely than not statistically that a, a VCs are going to invest a founder that failed than one that had success because you learn so much more in failure. Yes. So I'm, I'm dropping some interesting statistics on this and I'll, I'll continue to spice them through that, but hopefully you're catching them. But um, age, age of founder, um, probability of founders, series uh, ABC, um, you know, in this case, you know, likely to be successful or failure second, third time. So in this case, you know, most VCs, if you have success as a first time founder, you know, the second time they're like, oh, well, they're going to fail statistically. Right. So I don't want to be the part of the failure. And because they're probably fortunate, like, unless it's an extraordinary success. So, you know, if they make so much money and they just like, you know, they wouldn't have to work again to become a VC, maybe. Um, if they want, if they're just a serial builder like myself, they just keep building companies. That's for different reasons. So if you're batting, you know, 300, that's still Hall of Fame. If you're batting 500, great. If you're batting 100, not so good. So, like, there's a reason why. Could be trust, could be credibility, could be. You're, you're not stacking any of your capability and learning, your network, for example. Things that are sort of like create unfair advantage for you, you don't have any because your relationships perish, for example, or you don't have credibility in a marketplace. Um, those sort of things. You know, so constantly reinventing yourself versus stacking your career are very different things to leverage. And also just quite frankly, your reputation. You know, the, the world is very tiny. So if I, you know, what I do typically in diligence and investments or, um, or people is, you know, you, you call the sort of second degree or third degree of people who've worked around them and, and they'll, they'll tell you the truth. Um, you know, so it is, there's lots of ways of, 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 of sorting that, sorting those sort of big questions uh, out with, with diligence. Again, I would go back full circle, which is depending on the, the, per, the, the, in the founder's experience, some, some companies need a lot of experience. Some are very technically complex. Some are not. Some are because their youth is the reason why they see something that no one else can see. And they have the skills to, and resourcefulness and gr- drive, drive to, to see that. Maybe they're utterly brilliant, have unlimited energy, and are in a new space that no one understands they can build. Let's say it's, or it's really technical, complex, and they have the commercial chops and an incredibly strong technical founder to do that. So it's really the cocktail of skill and talent relative to the problem timing and person you consider through those lenses I described. So it's not a simple, simple equation. Got it. Um, throughout the, throughout the podcast, you've, you mentioned a lot about, um, about like re- a little bit of a reputation about network. When we talk about the startup playbook, you had talked and connected with hundreds of successful investors and entrepreneurs, uh, to get advice and their learnings. And so it seems like a lot of the early stage startup space is run through word of mouth and connections. And so ever since I was 18, I've been hearing things like your network is your net worth. And so especially in this in the space that we're in, do you find that to be true? And if so, how did you go about building your network, building so many connections with amazing people enough to make a book about it? Well, I mean, it goes back to the point about caring caring deeply. I think people know people who are trying to profit from you versus care mm. for you. And um, thinking very long term, 
You know, there's you're not going to walk into the life of a of a CEO of the Fortune 500 or C-suite as an interloper. You're going to come through someone who has an authentic vetted relationship. If you don't have that, you have to build it. So you have to be where they're at. You have to create value. So some 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 mindsets are really entitled in the sense that they feel like they are extracting value. I think philosophically, a good way to think of this is you have to create. 10 times more value than the dot, the, the dot, the value you take an order of magnitude. So what the question is, is, you know, how do I build relationships with people and create value to people that I think I'd want to know? And this isn't, you can't kind of, kind of do this with like the sin of comparison. Like you can't be out there being like, my value is my value, so to speak. It's, it's as you move through the world and you're curious and you're interesting and you're interested more importantly, You'll, you'll learn a lot. It's synthesizing a lot of interests and then determining your level of interest in one area to create value. And then that itself will, will build a momentum. And then the things I tell my three sons are is that you're always the sum of your five closest friends um, throughout your life. It's just, it's a truth that's so profound. I just spent the last weekend up at uh, up north at our lake house and with literally five guys of a list that I belong to for the last uh, 15 years of acknowledged entrepreneurs I've known for 25 years. Like that doesn't, uh, it doesn't happen overnight. It's where you're beginning. And then, you know, everybody in that group has had some degree of success. Some are incredibly successful. Some are journey entrepreneurs. Some have retired or young, but like it's all over the place. Some are, some are still growing, still struggling. And that's part of their journey. That's okay. We're with them. But the learning and the relationships in that room that last four dives, just incredible. They just built up such a body of knowledge and contacts that they want to help. And I want to help them and, and create value. So, but you don't have to compete on creating value. You have to build what you are good at, what you are pioneering at and contribute that. That gives me a lot to think about, especially as someone who is new to the space. I've always struggled with trying to create value, right? I've always almost felt like I was forcing it. I'm like, okay, I will like source deal flow for you. Just trying to like shove value into other people's space when mm. I have a call with them. Um, but I guess it, it needs to come from a more genuine place of building deeper connections and being there for the ride yeah. um, is what it sounds like. Well, I mean, listen, yeah. it, um, it takes a long, long, long time to get good at something. I mean, this is the big <laughs> myth is like, you, you just have to take your expectations and trip how long it takes. I mean, I, I spent mm. the first eight years of my career building two companies that, I, I mean, I worked <laughs> hundred hour weeks for seven, eight years straight and very few breaks. So like, and then I had, I made some money and I had the second exit actually worked and I, and I, then I took two years off and rested and I traveled the world and got recharged and came back and started my family life and started another company that didn't work. And then another one that kind of worked. And then I had another success that worked and wrote a bunch of books. Like, but the point is, you know, it's just like, again, it's the becoming, there isn't really an outcome that's ever going to satisfy you. There's no amount of, you know, getting to the top of anything. If that's what you're trying to accomplish, once you get to the top of it, you realize there's nothing there, literally nothing there. Like, I guess you could make a lot of money and that would be fine. And that's great. And then you have a bunch of stuff, stuff that you have to, you know, you could do. But like, it, it really is all in the journey and the experiences with other people. So if that changes, if, we, if you change the nature of what got you there, then you change the joy in it. So like, for example, like whenever they look at success or failure of people, make a lot, make it a lot. They make it right. Quote unquote, make it. It completely fail within a couple of years after that. They lose all their money. They blow themselves up, whatever it is. Um, the reason why that happens is because they stopped doing what got them there. So like, think about that. If you're trying to get to wealth or success or whatever you deserve next, and then you're doing something that you're going to stop doing there when you get arrived, when you arrive, quote unquote, there, and you pick what there means. It could be a sale of a company, it could be a net worth, it could be a comp. I have no idea what it is. It could be a family, it could be a social good. But when you get, quote unquote, get there, and you don't really deeply care, you're going to stop doing what got you there. And then you're going to experience the crushing 
nature of the other side of that, the revelation of it. So my point is don't build to the top of anything, build in the context of becoming, because then you never stop doing it. Then there's no risk. It, there's a, there's a, I like this word that I got, I heard from, um, blanking. It's uh, Ron Howard's part, uh, Rob Grazier. And he said this idea of do only do things that are inevitable. Like it's a, like, for example, he'll, he'll take big risks, making a film, find something that is sort of stretches him, doesn't break, but stretches him, whatever it is, because he believes this is an inevitability. If something is truly inevitable in you, you know it to be true. You have, you have gnosis, you know. But when somebody is like truly wishful thinking or you're trying to get something you know you don't deeply care about, it's perishable. Inevitable things are things that come from a core becoming because you know they're true. You're willing to do the work indefinitely till they become true because they are true. That's a very different mindset and space. Entrepreneurs like that are people that I would want to invest in doing. Does that make sense? I love that. I think that's that's so profound and it gives me a lot to think about because I mean I'm 23. I don't know deeply what is what is inevitable for me just yet. Um but it'll come if I continue to be genuine with my actions is is how I feel. Really well said. Definitely a great way to look at career and really life. I'd like to segue into more of a a walk down memory lane. Looking back at your life as a father and as a serial entrepreneur, at the end of it all, you said there's nothing at the top, but what do you want your legacy to be? You've done a really great job building a brand. Um, I mean, you're practically famous on LinkedIn. I don't <laughs> you... feel that way at all, but yes, it's, <laughs> it's it's really interesting. Every time I look into, um, every time I go to some big time investors profile or big time founders profile on LinkedIn, they're always connected to you as a mutual connection, <laughs> almost without fail. Um, but what is, what's next? What's What do you want your legacy to be at the end of it all? I read this book about a year ago um, at a recommendation of a friend called The Way to Integrity, which was written by Martha Beck. And um, it said, you know, there's lots of different versions of integrity, but the one that, you know, that is most important is not necessarily in the world, it's to yourself. And that is to if, basically this idea, which is if you want to have integrity, then don't lie to yourself like you can lie to the world but just don't lie to yourself i think that that conversation the truth to yourself you may not be able to live it out quite frankly and you may not be able to tell everybody it but you you, you must get to a place where you can tell yourself it and when you have that then you can sort of get to a place where um you can have an honest conversation about your gifts your impact and you can live in a way in life that you're truly yourself. And the reality is when you're 23, it took me till I was probably 40 to really get good at something and to know what I was good at. And the reality is like, is like you don't, don't get good at anything else someone else is good at. Like, why do you have to be them? Like, be you. Like, live your life. Like, and be good at what you're good at. And if that happens to be venture capital, great. If it happens to be a founder, great. If it happens to be, you know, you, know, you, you want to go to medical school. Like, whatever that is true, like, be you. Like, and I don't, I mean, if that's the becoming nature of this is, is don't live someone else's life, live your life. And I'll, and it's, it took me a long time to figure that out. And also it took me a long time to tell myself the truth and manage your life. I'm, I'm, I'm continuing to work closer and closer into my real life and saying it and doing it, but I'm not, I'm awake. I've also done, you know, some there, I think, I think very courageous, deep work over the last 10 years with some, you know, powerful tools that have allowed the idea of becoming to be probably the central idea of my life for me and for kind of anybody's around me, around the stages of that work, which is really knowing yourself wholly, everything, right? And you, you're probably, and I hate to say this, you're probably too, still too young to let the 
the, the root, but it, it, it will become clear to you, right? You'll, the root realities of who you are will emerge in the next decade where you're kind of like, is that really me or is that someone else? And, and getting to that, your own voice. So knowing yourself completely um, and how you became to become you is the first stage. Of that. The second one is, is receiving that healing because inevitably you, something or some, several things have happened where, you know, you're, you've dislocated your integrity, you've dislocated your truth, you've dislocated, you're not living your life, you're living someone else's life, um, trauma and otherwise. And I like, I, I refer to it as the dope, you're covering, you're it's sort of like the money, success, power stuff, trying to make yourself feel better for something that you don't actually aren't living out. So the, the healing part, the receiving part is that part. And the last part, knowing receiving is learning to just to be it, be, be, the idea of being. And um, it's a much deeper conversation, but framing that is, I think, the probably the most important part of the way I lead, the most important part of things I believe. And what I want for anybody who I love or get to work with is to be on a never-ending journey of that becoming around the stages of that work. And if you could do that in the context of a company, fantastic, right? You, you, and you can. Um, but it's a human experience. Solving problems or, is the world is a human endeavor. It can be enabled by technology. It can be enabled by services. But ultimately, it, it will cycle and vortex around deep care. Deep care for yourself. Deep care for your team. Deep care for your clients or customers. And I hope that for you and for anybody who's listening to this, that that is true. That's true. And you, you can't, that can't be true if inside you're not dealing with your own truth. Does that make sense? So that is really, that is really sort of the central ideas of all of the work for me and the companies I work with are expressions of that. Such words of wisdom. Like that was, that was fantastic. Um, as you were ex saying that whole that whole piece there, I couldn't help but think about the many times that I've almost like edited or um, changed myself to get a different reaction from other people. So when I went from high school to college, right, is a big turning point where you can remake yourself. Um, and I remember doing that out of Ultimately, it was a deeper insecurity, but I, you know, would change my personality to fit what I thought was really cool. And I feel like throughout my life, I've done that many, many times. And honestly, it's getting a little tiring because at the end of the day, all that's left is unapologetic, genuine self is um, something that I definitely picked up on. And I'm still so far yeah. from it. I, I, I hate to say it, but I'm still so far from it. Well, there's... I'll give you I'll, I'll give you my favorite quote related to that. It, um, so there's a Rainier quote, okay, Rainier Maria, okay, which he says it's it's from a book or book of poems called Letters to a, a Young Poet, and he said, "Have patience with everything that remains unsolved in your heart. Try to love the questions themselves, like locked rooms, like books written in foreign languages. Do not look for the answers; they cannot be given to you because you could not live them." It's a question of experiencing everything. At present, you need to live the question. Perhaps so gradually, without ever noticing, you'll find yourself experience the answer in some distant day. So the struggle is, is a lot of these things, and you build a company, is about living the question. You, the answer will, if you continue to live the question, the answer will, the inevitability of the answer will arrive, and you have to trust that. But if you're, if, you're the, if you're not living the question, you're trying to get to the answer, get the answer, then you're not in a position to get the answer if you can't hear it because you're not there, right? Moved away from yourself. So, um, but listen, the things you're sharing, I, I, I respect and appreciate your vulnerability in that, and I, I kind of live that out too, is totally normal. Like, totally normal. It's, it's, I, was, I was the same way. My ambition was much bigger than my intellect and capability, and somehow they've what come together but I'll, I'll give you another mental model for what you're describing which is in the context of becoming if you got a mental model where imagine like the letter t right and your reality your life is all the things you experience that are really the outcome of what that reality sits on 
which is really your, your choices. And that sounds very like, kind of like no kidding, right? But it, most people, and I mean myself included, try to fix my reality from the outside in, right? Ambition, self-help, whatever those things are. And those are all really good to be students of and learning until you realize that there's no amount of it's gonna fix the fact that your choices are really just intentions. Intentions create choices that create reality. The question is, is how do I see my intention and how do I fix it if I don't like my reality? So you could try to fix with unlimited energy your choices to the degree that your discipline can withhold you, which is finite, it's not unlimited, especially about the day, by the way. Um, so the way to, the way to understand your intention is to find out what's underneath the intention, which is why. Why I intentionally choose this reality, right? So the work of becoming is really knowing that why, right? Once you know your why, you can then change your why to because now you, it's been real to, real to you. Now your intention changes and you're working in it, the natural flow state of your choices are from the inside out. So knowing and receiving the sec the last the second part of becoming receiving is to 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 heal from the why because inevitably it'll be about something that's happened to you or something you believe about yourself that's not true. The why what's you, is realizing what's underneath the why, which is a state, a natural state, and this is actually not something you can't fix this from the outside in. It only can be fixed from the inside out, and there's actually one of only two states, and that is love or fear. So most people spend their whole life living in an innate state of fear aligned to their why that creates their intentions and they can't affect their choices despite all of the effort, all the hustle, all the learning, all the demanding, all the judgment, indictment from the outside in, they're misaligned and they can't get there. So knowing and receiving, once you get there, once you get from that state, your why is clear, you now know, you're awake, you're coming from an innate state of love, your intentions are aligned, and your choices flow from that. Now you're in a state of being. That's being. No other being. So my point about having patience is it's gonna take half of your life and maybe some extremely, extremely difficult times of brokenness to get to a place where these things work in concert. But the good news is in the beginning state, it's the energy you have now, the light inside of you, the energy, the hard work, the hustle, and the thinking that will get you to that place. Oh my goodness. I have to come back and rewatch this recording every year on my birthday and see how close I've gotten <laughs> to this because, well, without judgment, exactly. I, I, that may be tough to do, but I'll try my best. I, uh, I was thinking about... I mean, I'm sure you've read Simon Sinek's Start With Why. Um, but he's a buddy. Yes, he's a great guy. Yep. Right. So that's what I was thinking about. But this is like the level below that, right? Um, and it's it's even deeper. And I, it's interesting. After you've given us this this piece, I, I'm like excited. I'm excited to go work on this and see how far yeah. I can get and keep trying um, because ultimately that's, that's what we all want to live like, right. Is, is to be genuine and honest with our intentions and deeply comfortable in our own skin, know our why come from a place of love. Um, I, yeah, I just, uh, I wasn't expecting this at all, but I, I, and then deep think about, thoughts. Think about <laughs> writing rather than thinking about through goals and ambitions, write it as a claim. So write, you know, you could write. Um, just a, a being statement on being and make 10 claims about what it means to be you today. I am, right? From that state, from the inside out. And then trust that if you align yourself with those things, then they will become true and the inevitability will flow from that. That's it. And then li and live every day as opposed to, you know, the constant... I, I'm trying to be that person in the future when you already are it today. That's a very different state of, of, of existing um, and trust and patience in the journey. Now, it's not, and not to say you're not going to work hard. You're going to work very, very, very hard. 
it would be largely defeated. But, you know, it's sort of a lot of the success is sort of feels like, I think of it this way, which is your total, you feel, despite your ability to write this as being, as like your total failure until you're not. Whatever you, whatever that state is, like you're like, oh, this will be the signal, whatever that success is you need in your meat suit. That feels that way until it's not. But the beans is a claim you can, you can have that today. Well said, David Kidder. After berating you with questions for an hour, our time has sadly come to an end. But before we go, I have two quick questions for you. First, I'd like you to shout out an investor that you admire or that you think has great investment theses that you really respect. I have a couple I really love. I mean, I mentioned Albert Winger at USV, um, uh, Brian Singerway for at uh, Founders Fund. That was very good to me. Um, Eric Paley at Founder Collective. I'm very close with the first Mark Capital guys. Uh, um, John Key at Torch Capital. Chris Cunningham at C2. Chris Saka at Lower Carbon. This is I have a, a Dale Ressi. I've, I've just I mean I have so many. I'm so fortunate to know so many, and I'm sure I'm forgetting some, and if I've forgotten you, please accept my apologies because I'm close with many. But those, those are, I mean, I'll pee in a bunch of funds and I've made a lot of investments, investors who I really do deeply, deeply admire and have created a lot of value for me and I hope, hopefully I have for them, so yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And, and the last one is, what is one startup that you think has the potential to change the world? You know, there's a lot right now. I mean, I still think we're in the early stages of SpaceX future, and I was fortunate to the founders to invest in that. Um, still, I mean, that's a 150 billion company. It's probably has 30x in front of it, and world life changing realities for all of us. I mean, any, and a lot of the big AI ones, Anthropic, ChatGPT, uh, OpenAI, are, are are really, really, really significant, significant things. Um, there's a company that I invest in called Inner Cosmos uh, that's doing like kind of like a neural link for depression, which I think is really valuable, or just like mental health. Um, there's a company called Gabby, which I've invested in, which is doing early breast uh, detection uh, uh, for breast cancer detection for women. Wealthy with Lindsay Rosner, who's um, focused on coordinated care at a distance, which I love. Um, there's just, there's a lot, um, you know, I invested in uh, Micromedica, which is Paul Stamets company, trying to bring, take uh, psilocybin and uh, psychedelics into the mainstream into agriculture, invest in, including maps. So huge believer in that space and the experiences. So I, there's not, there's not one, there's, but there are corpuses of people who are truly have proprietary gifts and they're living it out. And I think they're, they are becoming, and it's really exciting to be part of it. Oh, what a great way to end the show. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Very grateful. Very grateful. Thank you.